Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Hey, Garden Church. Uh, Before we get started, I need to take a second and clear the air. I know what you might be thinking. It happens anytime I'm out hanging around Long Beach. The answer to your deep question is no. I am not Darren. Now, we look pretty similar, I can understand. Like, we get confused all the time, but if you look closely and um, you actually look, you'll notice that I have brown eyes and Darren doesn't. So all I have to say, my name is Christian and um, I love y'all. Like, deeply love you guys. I, right now, I'm a part of the team in Portland at Bridgetown. You guys are like a sister church to us. And I remember the first time I got to visit your community. It was 2019. It was, um, I think, November of 2019. Do you remember the old world, like pre-COVID, gathering in church, all of that? That's when it was. And I remember walking into the back of your gathering, sitting down um, in the school. It was in the back middle. And I remember sitting down, and worship began to start. And I remember just sensing the like sincere love for Jesus that was in your community. Not only that, I could see and like experience for my own self in the time of ministry and prayer, like the deep faith that's in your community. And so just really from the bottom of my heart already in my interactions, I love you deeply. Glad to be part of the family of God together. If you have a Bible um, or if you have a phone or anything, why don't you open it up to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45, we, um, whenever we come together, whenever we gather, whenever we open up the scripture, our hope and my hope at least deeply is not that we'd walk away thinking like, oh, that was really good worship or, oh, that was a good sermon or, oh, that was such a good this or that. No, the, whenever we gather, whenever we come together, the actual goal is that we walk away actually going, that's a really good God. So for the next few minutes, I want to talk a little bit about life, but through the framework and context of really like the goodness of God and the good things that he has for his kids, the things he wants to invite you and I into in this season of life. We're talking in our church, this family has been talking about what it means to have emotional and spiritual health, to be these people who are vibrant and alive, to be people who are emotionally and spiritually healthy. And so today I want us to look a little bit at this passage, this text, this moment, this account, not just a story, The Bible isn't like a bunch of fairy tales. I want us to actually consider the real story of some real people. It's this multi-generational family that is deeply dysfunctional. I mean, like if they were alive right now, there would probably be a reality TV show talking about like how broken and dysfunctional. Actually, we basically have it. It's in the scripture. And so I want us to look at it. I want us to take a few moments to consider this family the family of Abraham, what they were like, and specifically around the time of Joseph and some dysfunction that happened and even some healing that happened in that family. Now, if you are new to this story, maybe you've never read Genesis before, that is more than okay. But I will say today we'll have some like spoilers alert and spoilers in the book. So it's been out for like over 2,000 years. If you haven't read it, that's on you. Um, But a little bit of backstory. So we see this family, um, this man named Abraham was called out. He began to make this family, and it grew generation after generation after generation. Now, three, four generations down the line, we get to this man's great, great, this great grandson named Joseph. Joseph had 10 other brothers at the time, and they actually disliked him. Family dynamics, right? Could you imagine having 10 other brothers? 
crazy. This man has 10 other brothers at this time, an 11th later, and his brothers don't like him. We're not going to get into that today, but they don't like him. And so in a horrible twist of events, they capture him and sell him into slavery away to another country. Could you imagine? Like your siblings don't like you so much that they, they traffic you out of the country and hope to never see you again. On top of that, these siblings lie to their dad about what happened and act like he died. And so the way our story picks up is decades after the situation, Joseph, the brother who was sold into slavery, is interacting again with his brothers. Years later, this family's had so much dysfunction, and now it comes to the climax, the end of the book of Genesis, and we look at Joseph, the way he interacts with his brothers. Genesis chapter 45. And if you're willing and able, even at home, would you stand for the reading of Scripture? Here's what the scripture says. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of his attendants. So he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. But he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? but they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God has set me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Skip down. Then Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin, And wept. And Benjamin wept on his shoulder. Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. So may we be good hearers and better doers of the word. May we trust what Jesus says. May we love Jesus deeply. And may we follow Jesus well. Amen. And if you're standing, you may be seated. Do you remember much about being a kid? I actually um, really enjoy young kids. I don't have kids right now. I'm unmarried in an awesome relationship. One day I want to have kids, but right now I don't. But I, I really enjoy little kids, especially the age of like two to three, because like they're starting to talk and function and they're becoming their own persons. I love that about kids. Kids are so cool because they like, they're not like us. They're not like adults. They don't filter what they say. They just say whatever they're thinking. Like if a kid does not like you, you will know it. And if a kid really does like you, you'll also know it. It's like the coolest trait where they're just so present to themselves and so alive to who they are. They tell you what they think. I love that about kids. I remember the story about my youngest brother. I have two younger brothers. And my youngest brother, when he was a little kid, he's black, of course. I mean, hello. Um, If you were wondering, 
brown skin. And so uh, my brother, he was talking to my mom once after he came out of the bathroom. He had just been in the bathroom for a little bit and he runs up to my mom and he had this cute lisp and he goes, hey mom, 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 I have a question for you. And my brother, Josh, looks at my mom and goes, mom, we're brown. And my mom's like, yes. And he goes, okay, so if we're brown and we poop brown, do white people poop white? Like, that was my brother. And I love that. Like, that's how little kids are. They just say whatever they're thinking. They ask whatever is like on their minds. They're so real. I remember years later, a couple years later, when I was a little older, my mom came up to me and asked me as a little kid, Christian, what do you want to be when you grow up? Anyone else ever been asked that? It's like the staple question to ask any kid. What do you want to be when you grow up? And there was a time I wanted to be a firefighter, a time I wanted to be a pilot, but eventually I had my hopes set on something lower or higher. I wanted to be the president of the United States. Yes, I told my mom that day, I wanted to be the president. And so my mom was like, okay, okay, that's cool. So do you wanna be like the youngest president ever? That would be really cool to be the youngest. And I stopped and my little like four or five-year-old self looks at my mom and I said, no, I don't wanna be the youngest because the youngest can always be beaten. Someone younger can come in and beat me. Instead, I want to be the first black president, Enneagram 3, knowing I get beaten already, right? I'm in therapy for that. I want to be the first black president. And now, as you probably know, some other guy beat me to that punch. I had to find a different career path. But it makes me think about it. Like, what did you want to be when you grow up? Even right now, I want you to actually like pull out your phone or piece of paper or something, and I want you to write it down. Like, what do you still, to this day, want to be when you grow up? And no, I'm not talking about vocationally. I'm not talking about what do you want to do with your time. I'm not talking about how do you want to get a paycheck. I'm actually asking, what sort of person do you want to be years down the road? Let me put it even in another framework. If I were to meet you on the road three years from now, and you were to introduce me to yourself, just imagine you could, or someone else was going to introduce me to you, what would you want them to say? What would you want them to say about the sort of person internal you are, the sort of emotional person, the sort of spiritual person you are? Who do you want to be when you grow up? Actually, like write, write some things down, whatever comes to mind. I did this exercise just the other day. Here's what I wrote. If you were to meet me a few years down the road, I'd want to be able to introduce you to a person who's comfortable in his own skin, who's free of self-destructive patterns, who's quick to ask for what he needs from those in his life. I want to be a person who doesn't avoid conflict. I want to be able to name hard seasons in my life and grieve them well. I want to be a person who's deeply vulnerable and honest in my friendships. I want to be the sort of person who doesn't react poorly in my relationships. Who do you want to be emotionally when you grow up? What about spiritually? I wrote down that I wanted to be a person who senses God's nearness all throughout the day. Like that Brother Lawrence sort of everywhere you go, your mind is this inner chapel where you meet with the presence of God all throughout the day. I want to have a deep awareness of my belovedness, like that I know within my bones how loved I am every moment. I want to be a person who's comfortable and really actually enjoys being silent with God. Someone who's free from false comforts like TV or food. Someone who has an ever like deepening love for Jesus. Someone whose trust in Jesus just keeps on growing with every passing season. Who do you want to be when you grow up? I think deep down, we all want to be emotionally and spiritually healthy people. 
I mean, don't you, right? We wanna be people who are flourishing in our relationships, people who are free to be whoever God has made us to be. We wanna be able to name our past and present without shame. Could you imagine feeling that? Living a life past and present that doesn't have shame. We wanna enjoy rich friendships, have a deep sense of like value and purpose and meaning and worth. We wanna be people who aren't stuck in apathy or who aren't naive or people who aren't embittered, people who aren't destroyed by angst or worry or anger or fear or sadness. Yet, that's not what so many of our lives actually look like, right? We have this deep longing, this deep desire, this deep ache, like to be better and healthier and more vibrant, fully alive, yet it often feels like we aren't fully there. I grew up in a great church, a great church like your own, and I came to know Jesus at a really young age. I think it was like four or five in this awesome kids ministry. And um, I remember being in like the second or third grade, we had this kid ministry called Kid Zone. Yes, and it was spelled with a, a Z, Kids Zone. And that's what you do in the 90s in church. And so I was in Kid Zone. And I remember every week our pastor would ask if anyone wants to come to know Jesus, everyone wants to go to heaven when they, when they die, that sort of thing. And every week I'd go back up in the altar call. I'd go, yeah, I want to know Jesus. I want to go to heaven when I die, that sort of thing. And eventually my mom asked me like, why do you go up in the altar call every week? And I, I told her something along the lines that, well, deep down, like, I, I feel like I did something bad this week and I just want to make sure. Now, while that's pretty poor theology from a second grader, that is something true that I realized. And I knew deep within my even second grader heart that I wasn't fully the person that I should be. Why is it that you and I can love Jesus sincerely and still deep down have this desire to surrender to him, but still have sin or just dysfunction that seeps out of our lives. We see it in the ways that we treat people poorly, even though we don't really want to, or the ways we're easily frazzled or we're reactive. I know that I love God, but some of my life isn't godly. Why is that? Well, to answer that question, our friend Pete Scazzaro would say, well, it's because Jesus lives in your heart but at the same time, grandpa lives in your bones, which is a terrifyingly creepy like, way to say something. Jesus lives in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. And as weird as it sounds, he actually has a good point. There's these things that are like ingrained deeply in us, like in our personhood, in our personality, and who we are. It's almost like muscle memory. Have you ever, like, do you have a grocery store around your house? I do. I have a Trader Joe's that's like four blocks away from my house. And most days when I need to go to the store, I go after work. So I grab my keys, leave the office at five, head over to the grocery store. And I can't tell you how many times I've been like, oh, I need to go to the grocery store to pick up some spinach or go get whatever, or let's be honest, get some chips, some crackers, some like more carbo load. Come on. And I'd have to go to the store. And I can't tell you the number of times where I'd have my keys, I'd be in the car, and I'd think, okay, it's four blocks from my house, I'll just go on the way back home. And then I'd end up in my garage going, wait, wait a second. How did I already just, how did I just go home? It's because deep down in my muscle memory, I didn't have to think about it. I just drove the place my muscle memory took me. But that's not just with driving. It's actually how we live each of our lives. So much of our lives are actually a response to what has been ingrained deeply in us. Jesus might be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. All of that comes to our family of origin. 
Our family of origin plays a huge part in who we are, which that might seem like a no-brainer, but have you ever really thought about it? Like really thought about your family of origin recently? Just look at the first page of the Bible. It's something we see clearly in scripture. Eve and Adam, there's a situation with them where the Bible says that they saw something that was pleasing to the eye and they took it. This piece of fruit that God told them not to do. One generation later, their son Cain saw something going on with his brother and he took his life. Cain had a few descendants later, this man named Lamech. The Bible says that he saw these women who he valued, who he wanted, and he took multiple women as his wives, which the Bible is not approving of. And then it actually says that he wrote this poem where he gloated about taking the lives, not of just one person like his great-grandfather did, but of anybody who came up against him. It's interesting how sin and dysfunction seems to follow down generation after generation after generation. But even more poignant than the first family in the Bible, we see it in the account of what we talked about today in Genesis 45. Like I said earlier, to give some backstory, there's this man named Abraham. Abraham is the father of what God promised to be many nations, the father of the Judeo-Christian faith. He's this man who God promised, go, follow me, trust what I have to say, and I'm gonna bless you. Yet interestingly enough, if we follow the line of Abraham, There's this trait through him and his son and his grandson, even his great-grandchildren. There's this trait of them being liars and deceivers. Just listen to the story. Genesis 12, Abraham lies about his wife to the king of Egypt. Genesis 20, Abraham lies about his wife to king Abimelech. Abraham, or Genesis 26, Abraham's son, Isaac, lies to king, another king Abimelech about his wife named Rebekah. Genesis 27, Rebekah helps her son, Jacob, lie to his father for the birthright. Genesis 27, Jacob lies to Isaac about who he is in order to get the birthright. Genesis 29, Laban, the uncle, deceives Jacob. Genesis 31, Jacob's wife, Rachel, deceives Laban. Genesis 34, Jacob's kids deceive a man named Hamor and his son. Genesis 37, Reuben tries to deceive his brothers. Genesis 37, Jacob's sons deceive Jacob. Genesis 38, Jacob's son, Onan, tries to deceive Tamar and his father. Genesis 38, Tamar deceives Judah. Genesis 42, Jacob's sons lie about being honest men. Genesis 44, Joseph even deceives his brothers about his identity. It's like Isaac was playing out his family's dysfunction. And so was Laban and Rebekah and Jacob and Onan and all of Jacob's sons. But this isn't just a problem for a story and people in the Bible. This is actually the story of humanity. We can trace the passions and desires and fears and failures from one generation to the next. Just watch Star Wars. I mean, you look at Anakin who becomes Darth Vader and his compulsions and fears and passions and powers. And you see similar fears and powers and passions and compulsions in his son, Luke, and even later his grandson, Kylo Ren. It's normal to see patterns from one generation to the next. You know, and sometimes that's helpful, right? Like one of my friends, the family, his name is the Garza family, and they're some of the most hospitable kind, welcoming, generous people I know. I think of my grandmother who reads her Bible and prays every day. And I remember seeing that each day and my dad modeling that same thing. And then honestly, me and my brothers learned to read my Bible, read our Bibles and pray because of the legacy of the generations that came before us. Sometimes what we get from those ahead of us is helpful, but sometimes it's unhealthy. Multiple generations of liars or gossip or anger, or substance abuse, or you name it. It doesn't take a genius or a rocket science. We all know what it's like. 
It reminds me of, one of my, what one of my youth pastors used to say, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Or maybe in this case, show me your family and I'll likely show you your future. As the saying goes, the apple doesn't far, fall, fall far from the tree. By God's design, family is intended to be the most powerful group for our formation. Family, it's intended by God's design to form us. It's, it's a powerful agent in our formation. Think about when I was a kid, I grew up with these toys called Transformers. If you remember the TV show, Transformers, Robots in Disguise. Yeah, that's what I grew up with. And I remember having these toy Transformers. And the unique thing about these toys when you actually got to play with them is that there were these vehicles, these cars and these planes and helicopters and ships and things that could turn into something else based on who touched it. Based on who touched it, they would transform. And that's so true about how we operate. The problem is not that we are formed by our family of origin, but rather how we are formed by our family of origin. We could probably think of lifestyles and habits and patterns that our families of origin have formed into us. But I want to take it a step deeper, not just from the actions. It's easy to forget that our families don't just form our behavior, but they also form our thinking. Our families, they have this deep imprint on the ways that we navigate the world. I was talking to a few of my friends about this recently. They are young parents who have um, young kids. And one of my friends, she was telling me that her dad, when she was a kid, she remembers her dad would roll her eyes sometimes at her mom, at his mom, her mom. And then later on, she picked that up. She would start to roll her eyes. And now she has a three-year-old who's also starting to roll his eyes. She's like, where did you learn that from? Oh, from me and from grandpa. Or another friend, I'll call her Sam. She told me that her mom was an avoider. Like her mom would always act like everything's, everything's okay, sweetie, everything's okay. To the point where at one season of life when things were falling apart, her mom didn't tell any of the kids or family that she was in counseling until she'd gone through all of it for months. My friend, Sam, she was subtly formed into an avoider just like her mom. Her response in conflict was saying that, you know, she didn't have the energy to deal with the problem right now. She would tell her kids in every situation that everything was fine, everything's okay, even when things weren't okay. Then she started to notice her four-year-old son. She would watch her young son when he would seem to be having big emotions or big feelings, not really want to talk about it or name it. He'd he would kind of stuff it and act like everything was okay. She told me her son was learning to think that his needs aren't important and they don't need to be addressed. He was learning that from his mom and from his grandma. Now, this isn't to villainize anyone. I'm not here to villainize your grandparents or my own because truthfully, like she told me even, her grandma thought that the best thing she could do for her family was to act like everything was okay. But big picture, what it was actually doing, that was at the expense of herself and now her grandkids. They didn't really learn how to be truly okay in the middle of hard things. And so my friend Sam and her husband, they're saying that they feel really strongly in this season to make sure they unlearn and they don't let these ways that they learn from their family of origin pass on to their kids. Our family of origin has such a deep impact on who we are. And the unfortunate news about that is that there's nothing we can do to change the past. Encouraging, right? Welcome to church. There's nothing you or I can do to change the past. We can't wish away our family of origin. We can't fix our family's history. We can't outrun it. We can try to bury it or stuff it or avoid it or forget it. But the truth is we really need a way forward. 
And the way forward isn't just mustering up enough willpower to just like muster it up and figure it out. It's not even listening to hopefully a motivational sermon about fixing it. No, no, no. What we need is not just willpower or inspiration. What can help us? Like what is going to help us really become people? The sort of people that we deep down long to be. The people not like destroyed by fear and anxiety. The people who don't blow up on our families. The people who don't have generational dysfunction. The people who deal with our shadows and the hurt and the wounds that no one else really notices. What can help us? We actually need to go back. The thing that will actually help us go forward is going back. We need to go back to go forward. In order to go where we want to go, to become the sort of people we long to become, we have to go backwards. It sounds kind of topsy-turvy. It sounds weird. It sounds upside down, kind of like an upside down kingdom. In order to go forward, we need to go back. Actually, just say it once out loud. We need to go back to go forward. Yes, I mean, actually, one more time with me, even watching this, you need to go back to go forward. It's that line from St. Augustine who says, know yourself that you may know God. But I'd like to take that a step further. Maybe know your family so that you may know yourself so that you may know God. We need to understand generational sin and dysfunction and brokenness in order to stop it. We need to be able to observe generational patterns that are played out in our very lives because if we don't learn from our past, we're actually doomed to repeat it. This means actually asking questions about our upbringing and our parents and their parents to as many generations as we can go back. Peace Cazera also said it this way. He said, we have to put off. We need, it's about putting off the sinful patterns of our family of origin and releasing how to do life in God's way and in God's family. We let go and we release the old ways to learn how to do it God's way and a part of God's family. Now, often there's messages that come in our family's upbringing. We receive them and we don't even realize it. It's so subtle. It's stuff like money, education, power, or status is the way to happiness. It's that certain cultures or people are not as good or even something more subtle, they're just not normal. It's that financial security, things like financial security is the most important or the, most, they're the deciding factor for life. What about the message that says conflict is what destroys relationships so it should be avoided. Or one that I understood really personally. Sarcasm is an acceptable way to release anger. Or tough emotions like depression or angst shouldn't be expressed. For me, my mom's an immigrant from Ethiopia. And in Ethiopian culture, we have a very high value for achievement, especially in terms of education. So I remember when I was getting my master's degree that I completed, even before I'd finished it, my mom would call me. She's like, hey, so when are you going to start applying for doctoral programs? I was like, mom, I'm not even done with my master's. Like, chill out. I didn't actually say chill out because my mom's Ethiopian and she'd kill me. But deep down, that's what I felt. I remember now my brothers, um, my youngest, my middle brother is a PhD student currently at Berkeley working on his degree in education with a focus in race and gender studies to talk about like upward mobility for black students in higher education. I'm like, whoa. 
PhD above my pay grade. My youngest brother graduated from the University of Washington in a great medical program, and now he's in D.C. working on diabetes research before he applies to med, school, med schools now to like go become a doctor. So I have two younger brothers who are incredible, and they're brilliant, and they're both going to be doctors. And I'm like, cool, I'm the one who has a master's degree. I'm, the rever- I'm like, mom, at least call me reverend. If you call them doctors, I'm a reverend. We're like a bar joke. A doctor, a pastor, and a professor all walk into a bar or something. And I Actually, though, deep down, I notice that sometimes it causes insecurity and anxiety because of this value that I learned. Or maybe like my mom's generation. My mom grew up without her family in Ethiopia. And I think going from boarding schools to hospitals to basically host families, she heard the message or somewhere started to believe that, you know, she doesn't want to burden people with her life. The only person who will really be there for you is you. And I see in the ways that my mom avoids vulnerability sometimes or the ways that she would kind of distance herself when friendships or relationships start to get messy. And I see those same tendencies in my own self where sometimes I have a hard time being vulnerable or ways that I would distance myself from friends if things got too messy. To get even more vulnerable in my life recently, I felt like in my prayer time, God had been revealing these memories back to me from my childhood. And I remember in my childhood bathroom, um, I went to go brush my teeth in my dad and mom's bathroom. And my dad had these pictures and these like fitness things on his window and the bathroom. And I remember my dad would talk to me about like health and body and caring for it. And one year during puberty and junior high, in those chubby days, my dad looked at me and he said, hey son, stomach in, chest out. And he meant nothing by it. But actually those words imprinted on me about how I need to feel and look in my own body. It's wild the ways that the things in our past and our families of origin, generation after generation, imprint on us and forms us. What was it for you? As we go back, we'll begin to see how our past it deeply impacts both our present and our future. Think about Joseph in our story, not just a story, in the account, like in his life, this real person, Joseph. He's the fourth generation of deceivers and liars. I began to think about his story this past week and about being a liar. But really, lying isn't about lying. I mean, most people don't lie just because they enjoy lying. Lying is a way of navigating the world. Lying, it's about controlling others and controlling situations for the sake of security and safety and success. Abraham was trying to control outcomes. Isaac was trying to control outcomes. Jacob was trying to control outcomes. Generation after generation of liars, people who were lying as a means to control their lives and control the outcomes and form it into a certain way. What stopped this pattern? Well, things began to change for this family when they fought against the norms of their family's past. If you look at Genesis 43, Judah, one of Jacob's sons, instead of going after self-preservation, he chose self-sacrifice. In Genesis 44, multiple of the brothers, all of Judah's or Jacob's sons, instead of deceiving and trying to deceive again, they began to tell the truth. Or even Joseph in Genesis 45 that we looked at earlier. Joseph, he acknowledged that God was working in the middle of that mess of his family. He named the pain of his past, weeping, uncontrollably grieving what had happened, and then forgave. He began to write a new future for him and his family with God. And we, family, must do the same. 
we have to go back and actually consider the ways that our families have impacted how we navigate the world and then learn a new way to navigate our life. I actually think that's what Jesus and the writers of the New Testament are typically trying to help people do. I mean, think about Jesus' words, right? He would go like in the Sermon on the Mount and he would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. In other words, you have learned before. You have learned from the past. You have learned from your family, from the teachers and from other people who have formed you. But I have a new way of you operating. This is how. But I say to you, think about Jesus post-resurrection. Mary sees him at the empty tomb. And it's so interesting to me, the first words that Jesus says after the empty tomb, he tells Mary to go tell my brothers and your brothers about my God and your God, my father and your father. It's interesting to me that Jesus, the first thing out of his mouth after resurrection is he addresses the rest of God's people as sisters and brothers, as having the same God as their father. And actually, if you look at the New Testament, that is how the people of God are most commonly addressed as sisters and brothers, part of the household or family of God. In other words, maybe there's something to it. If we're most deeply formed and even, dare I say, deformed by our family of origin, maybe we get reformed by a whole new family. God is making a new family. And what he wants us to do is learn how to live into it. I think that's what Paul is getting at. And one of my life verses is Romans 12, one and two. And it says in it, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. You hear what he's saying? He said, instead of being conformed to the patterns of the world, the world is not just like people out there. It's actually the values and the thoughts and the norms of all people in opposition to God, of all people who aren't in the family of God. Paul is telling us to not be conformed to a different set of values and norms and culture. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to think differently. You're part of a new family that has a whole new way of operating, a whole new way of living, a whole different plane of doing life. You're part of a new family. God brings us out of the world and into his family. And then what he's trying to do, fam, is he's trying to get the world out of us. And in order to do that, we must go backward to go forward. That's even why the practice and the discipline of scripture reading and scripture meditation is so important. It's because we need new thoughts. We need new things to rewrite the narratives and the scripts and the ways we've always navigated the world. We need something that interrupts and stops the patterns in the past that we're going on. We need something that helps us create a new forward. So how do we do this? How do we go back to go forward? Let me just give you like two practical things that come to my own heart and my own mind from my experience of going back to go forward. I'll tell you to do two things. First of all, when you go back to go forward, do it with the Father. In other words, like don't just try to do it by yourself. Go before God himself in the secret, in the quiet, and talk to him about the past. I mean, God wants to speak to you. Our father actually wants to show us. The Bible says that the father sees in secret and meets us there. And so take a moment, like imagine, just sit down for 15 minutes quietly by yourself and go, Father, what do you have to say to me about my family, about my past? Are there things that I've learned that I need to unlearn? Are there things that are normal 
that I need to make not normal or I need a new normal? Are there sins or dysfunctions that have been generational in my family line that, I, that you wanna see broken and changed? Like for me, even as I thought about this teaching, I realized that there's three generations of divorced men ahead of me in my family line. And I'm determined to see that completely different in my generation of me and my brothers. Do it with your father. Second of all, do it with your family. Like the family of God. One of the hardest things, but one of the best things you can ever do is actually take yourself, your past, your brokenness, boldly before your family and actually allow them to re-love you into a new family. So much of what we learn from our family of origin is actually unlove. It's learning how to, actually it's learning shame and it's learning guilt. It's learning ways that are dysfunctional. And what we need actually is a different family to usurp those ways of living and actually re-love us into the family of God. Do it with your father. Do it with your family. In other words, don't do it alone. Now, I acknowledge that this can be difficult. And even as I was preparing and like praying for y'all garden, I had this real clear sense that for someone listening and probably a couple of you, that the biggest hindrance in this space is just fear. And that doesn't take a very spiritually deep person to figure out, but I just kept sensing to, to, to just address the fear with that. Like the fear and the questions going on in your heart. If I go back, there's just, oh, it's painful and it's scary. And what if they don't love me? What if, what if I can't handle it? And as I prayed for you, First John 4 kept coming to my mind. And it says that perfect love casts out all fear. Because fear involves torment. Perfect love actually casts out fear. You sense and find that perfect love in the presence of the Father and with your family. And God actually wants to dispel those fears as you step into loving relationship with him and community. For some of us going back, it's hard because we don't have relationship with our elders for this reason or that. Even myself, I don't have relationship with the people on my mom's side past my mom. For others going back, it's just painful. Please hear me. I get that. I really do. But let me tell you, the pain is worth it. The pain is actually worth it. There's a whole new way of living available to you. A whole new family to be loved into. A whole new way to be human. Who do you want to be when you grow up? Who do you want to be a year, three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? There's actually a way to do it. And could you imagine like, what would your life look like if you just tried this out, if you actually would just go back to go forward, if you would do some of the work and some of the processing and some of the messiness of it all and just go back to go forward? What would your life look like? What would it do to the anxiety and the fear? What would it do to the compulsion? What would it do to the generations of dysfunction? What would it do to the sarcasm? What would it do to the ways that we destroy relationships and deep down we have shame? And get, What would it do if we would really go back? And let me ask, what will our lives look like if we don't? Remember, Jesus, he died to bring you into a whole new sort of family. And so would you just trust him about that? Stepping into this new family, it really is just actually a matter of trust. It's learning to trust that as, the, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so far his ways above our own. 
It's learning to trust that the way that I've always lived life actually does not need to be the way that I need to live forever. It's learning to trust that I'm not doomed to a trajectory of my past. I'm not doomed to be exactly like those who came before me. It's actually learning to trust that even when some ways of living life are uncomfortable and they seem different and they're not the way I'm used to and it's not how I deep down want to react to a situation, that Jesus might be right when he's offering a new way to be human. Jesus is inviting you today really to trust. The action, maybe the call to response today isn't just go back to go forward. First of all, it's just to trust Jesus. It's to trust that he's good. Some church traditions actually call Jesus our true brother, like our true older brother. So would you trust him as he leads you to go back, to go forward? I want to take a moment and um, pray. And so wherever you're at, if you don't mind, if you're willing and able, if you're in a space where you can, would you stand? Take a deep breath in, a deep breath out. And even if it helps you to put your hands in front of you, just as a posture to use your body as a form of praying. You know, we pray with our minds, we pray with our emotions, we pray with our words, but also with our bodies. Maybe it helps you to stand and just posture yourself with your hands in front of you realizing that God is nearer than the very breath you breathe right now. Jesus told us that our father is attentive. He's watching. He's paying attention to you right now in this moment. Prayer is often just turning our attention back onto God who's already attentive to us. So just for a moment, I want you to talk with the father and even just listen God, is there anything you want to show me about my past and my family of origin? Just for a moment. Is there anything you want to show me? God, is there something you want to show me about the good you desire for my future? What would it look like to go with you, to go back, to go forward? Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.